We'll continue our series, <clears throat> Scars. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about scars. And as you know, when you get a scar, that means that there's been an event, a traumatic event, maybe, or whatever, and you've fallen off your bike or you've had surgery, and that scar means that there's been healing. And so you can point to that and show healing and tell your story. And also one of the things that we know, if we've done life long enough, that the most visible scars aren't the ones that hurt the most. The scars that are the deepest ones that no one can see are the ones that there's been deeper healing or that need deeper healing. And so we've been talking about those scars over the last few weeks, and we'll delve into that again this morning. And this morning we're going to delve into the scar of depression. And so there are sermons or messages or talks or whatever you want to call them that I wish that I could give you A plus B equals C, and you could walk out of here with a nice little package that's got a bow on top of it, and you go, Pastor Chris said, if I feel depressed or I struggle with depression, I can take this box and open it up, and this will, from the Word of God, will transform me, and I won't have to deal with that. Well, that's not today, okay? So what I want you to grasp this morning is that this is a growing concern. This is a growing issue in our culture, this thing called depression, and let's be honest about it. Let's dig into it and and see that God's Word does speak to it, but how can we grasp it, and what is what is it, and, and what can we do with it, and how can we move forward in the midst of struggling with this idea called depression. So there's a, a lame, I call it a lame definition because it's it expresses it, but there's so much more to it. So depression is this, a common, almost like a common cold, like I've got today, a common and serious medical illness that negatively impacts how you feel right, impacts the way that you think and the way that you act. So the depression is that something happens inside of here that transforms you in such a way that negatively you begin to feel and you begin to think and you begin to act in a way that's different from before. And so there's some unhealthiness about this. And so I want us to to think about that and to dig into that. And, And again, this is one of those messages even, I've had this happen once or twice in my life of preaching, is that there's so much stuff to dig into that we just kind of have to call time out and say next week we'll come back to part B and finish the message. And so we're going to dig in, and if we don't finish, we'll come back next week. Is that okay? Because I know some of you will you will um, run out at 12 o'clock because you have lunch plans. All right? So here we go. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19 and just a minute, we'll get there. Depression, even though it's a common experience, the causes are varied and unique. So I, I want to take just a moment, and lest you think that Pastor Chris is talking about a topic that he doesn't understand or grasp, I want to pull back the curtain a little bit on my life and let you in on something that only three people know about before today even my children didn't know about, is the moment that I sat before my good friend, a medical doctor, and said, hey, this is something I think that I'm struggling with. As a matter of fact, I didn't even make myself go to the doctor. My spouse did. So here we were in the midst of life, and we were planting a church. So planting a church doesn't mean that we're putting a seed in water. You're starting a new church, so there's this Entrepreneurs, like any other business, whenever you say you're starting something, you're all in, right? 
And so God, we felt like God had called us to plant a church near Columbine High School. That's in the area that we had lived in for almost 15 years. And so we felt called to that area. And we were a part of a larger church, and we were driving 30, 45 minutes to a different church and serving there. But we really felt like God was opening up doors for us to impact the area around Columbine. <clears throat> and so as we began to do that and pray through that, through that, 40 people, about 10 families or so, said, hey, we want to join with you and where we feel like God's leading. And so 40 people joined with us, and we started a church. And so we began to meet in a school. And so as a part of that whole meeting in a school and doing this every single Sunday, so every single Sunday we would gather together and someone would drive the big truck with the big trailer and they would open the back and we would unload the sanctuary, we would unload the nursery, we would unload the children's area, we would unload the youth group. I mean, <clears throat> it's a church in a box, all right? And we're unloading it every single week. That gets tiresome. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so we're doing this whole thing. And in the midst of that, because 40 people together weren't able to feed my family, we're doing everything and anything we can to start this business and also feed the family. So I'm traveling to churches and saying, hey, look, we, we need you to be a part of this. This is what God's doing and selling that. I had a whole business plan, church planning thing and all that different stuff and going through all of that. And at the same time, I'm teaching classes at Colorado Christian University and and those are in seed and they're online. And then I'm also working at Target and I'm also coaching a softball team. I'm also coaching a baseball team. And oh, yeah, I have a wife. And so we're going. And so if you have, imagine if you have a candle and your life is a candle, if you would have one light going, I cut it in about six different ways and was trying to get all of these lights going and trying to manipulate and use them in the proper ways. And so there came a point in the midst of all this that we grew from 40 to over 300, which is incredible, and over 100 baptisms. So God was doing something in the midst of that. And then the next thing I know, a couple of years in, one of my good friends came to me and said, hey, I'm done. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. It's moving too fast. I, don't, I can't keep up. I'm like, I know I can't either. So that was the first hit. Somebody I trusted was out. So then a couple of others, man, Chris, I can't, I can't keep this pace. I can't do this. And I'm like, look, God's doing something. Why are you bailing from the ship? It's after a little bit, you know, a few months, Becky came to me and she said, hey, there's something's not right with you. She goes, I love you. I can see it. You're, you're not sleeping, all these different things. And she goes, I know you got to check up real soon with the doctor. Let's, let's, you go to the doctor. And I was like, yeah, 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 I'll go do it. So we went there and Sitting, sitting in the doctor's office again, a great friend of mine, and he goes, hey, your blood work looks good, you know, your stuff, you know, you're, you're still short, you still have no hair, you could, you could lose a few pounds. I'm like, yeah, 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 that's 2012, you know, whatever that is. Those things are going to happen. <clears throat> Anything else? I'm like, nope. Everything else is good. And my wife goes, <clears throat> actually, he has something to talk to you about. I'm like, I do? Yeah. She goes, I think you might be struggling with depression. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm type A. I've got the answers. I've got the solutions. We're moving. We're going. We're grooving. Everything. This is just a little temporary setback. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
This has not been a two-week thing. This has been a two-month, three-month, four-month thing. I'm seeing this train tracking faster and faster and faster to destruction. And so you feel, and the doctor pulls out that DSM thing and says, do you feel X? Sometimes. Are you not sleeping? Yeah. I mean, you know, five out of seven nights. It's, I get two nights of sleep. You know what I mean? And so here I am, even in the midst of this rationalizing all this, and he says, you know, you might be there. So type A perfectionist person, never fail, never want to admit anything, is in front of my wife and a good friend, Saying, in that moment, feeling like I failed. Because how can God be doing this and doing all this miraculous things? I mean, seeing 80-year-old women that have grown up in a Catholic church that have been oppressed by lies say yes to Jesus and be baptized, and adult men giving up stuff and being falling in, into the baptism and just this life change, and in the midst of that, me saying, I have no hope. Because in the midst of all of that, for me, as I've looked through this and studied it, I became moved from being someone who's pointing people to the Savior to thinking that I was a part of the Savior. And so the weight and the burden of ministry and of life and of husband and of father and of all of this was on me, and it just kept getting heavier and heavier and heavier. So this morning when we think about this idea of depression, I want it just to, the causes are different and varied, but the experience in so many ways is similar as that there's a sense of hopelessness, there's a sense of aloneness, there's a sense of rejection, there's a sense of, of worthlessness. I mean, you put the words, you've, you've experienced it and walked through it, you've got it. And, and as research shows us, it's been something all throughout history that 99% of us deal with in some way and Probably the 1% that says that they haven't dealt with it don't want to admit it. Because we're humans and there's messes and there's those moments where life overwhelms. And so we struggle with this thing called depression. And so if you were to actually look in Scripture, you can't find depression. But if you were to kind of open up what are those things that describe depression, the Scripture is overwhelmingly giving us words of hope and of wisdom about what it means to suffer. So as I've studied this thing called depression, one of the things that I come back to is that maybe even a better word is suffering. That we're suffering through and walking through what it means to live life where we're at in the season, in a cave part of our season of life. Suffering is depression. The feelings of being sad and empty. The moments of losing interest in those things that once drove you now don't have anything for you. Maybe you've lost weight or maybe you've gained weight. There's those moments of insomnia or even hypersomnia where you just can't, you're constantly going. You fatigue easily. Those moments that you, the alarm clock goes off and you keep pushing snooze and you keep pushing snooze and you keep pushing snooze until the point you're like, you turn off the snooze and you just hold on the sheets and you're like, if I don't have to get up, if I don't get up, then I don't have to make a decision. And if I don't have to make a decision, and then you just go through the whole 
thing, and so you just decide that today's a day where I'm just going to be here. The feelings of worthlessness, the feelings of guilt, of all of those things that go in, the inability to think clearly and to concentrate, to the, the indecisiveness that comes, and so again, you just want to just shut it all down. Now, I admit I never got to the place of thinking about taking my own life. I would say I had a mild depression that I was able to make some changes to lifestyle and schedule. And so I've learned and I'm continuing to learn as a type A person to say no to more things than I say yes to. So that I just have one candle and there's only one me and I can only do so many things. And so if I usually if I tell you no, it's because I I, I can't do it. There's only one of me. And so this whole thing of, of thinking through life and one of the lies that I had bought into was that I could solve everything and be involved in everything. And I knew that to not to be true, but I was there. So depression comes from our suffering. But where does our suffering come from? Our suffering comes from other people. Right? I mean, those are the deepest scars sometimes is because we've done life with people and we've entrusted them. And the longer we do life with people, the more we trust them. And then somewhere along the way, maybe someone has cut us and cut us deep. So other people can cause that scar. And so we don't trust anymore. And so instead of the very thing that we should be running to, which is community, we run away from community because we don't want to offer ourselves to others to be trusted to. So we run from it. So other people cause us to enter into suffering We ourselves cause suffering, whether through our addictions or through the decisions that we make, that we have a tendency, maybe even because we've been hurt by others, that we keep others at distance. And so as soon as we sense that someone's going from here to potentially a hugging distance, that we push them away and we break those relationships because we don't want them to hurt us again. So it's easier for us to control the hurt rather than hurt us. So we keep people at a distance from us. And then I hear that getting older is like a train wreck, that you can see it coming and the luggage is breaking down and falling off and you can see it coming, but there's nothing you can do about it because the body is failing. That no matter how much or whatever, that at some point it's going to hurt to get up. It's going to hurt to sleep. It's going to hurt if you sleep too much, if you don't sleep enough, if you, you know what I mean? I mean, all this different stuff. And so the train wreck is going and there's nothing you can do. You're just on the ride. And so your bodies are failing. And so we grieve that the body is failing. And so again, it's suffering that happens. Another cause of suffering in our life is the evil one, the devil, Satan. In 2 Corinthians 11:14, it says that he is the father of lies. So if he's the father of lies, one of the things that he does to us is he speaks untruths to us that are close to the truth, and it's close enough to the truth, it's close enough to the light that we receive it, and then when we receive it, then we begin to act on it. And so then when we begin to act on it, then it becomes a part of us. And so then all of a sudden we're that one degree off and all of a sudden we're in a place that we don't want to be. And so those lies hurt us, those lies that we hear about ourselves, that you're not smart enough, you're not strong enough, you're not whatever, that you believe and you take in and you receive it and therefore you live life out of it. The lies that you believe about God that aren't true, that God is a good God, but then You believe that, but then something happens and all of a sudden you act in a way that's completely opposite of that, that you think that God's out to get you when he's not. Because if he's your good father, then he's protecting you. And all the different lies that we believe about God. 
Or even the lies that we believe that life owes us something, that we have this American idea that, hey, I'm going to get to a certain place and I'm going to make a certain amount of money and I'm going to have 2.5 kids and 2.5 cars and a picket fence and a two-story house and I'm going to be comfortable and all the different things and so that you're going to have a 401k and all these different things that you think are going to be a part of life expectancy and then all of a sudden it gets pulled out from underneath you and the very thing that you had put your hope in that you didn't even realize maybe you had put your hope in is pulled away from you. Now you're questioning God, why God? And God's like, not a part of that. That You've placed your hope in and then worshipped your 401k or your whatever. And so our life expectancy sometimes, the things that we expect from life get pulled away from us. Also, one of the things that this is an interesting idea is that sometimes our suffering is actually God allows it. That maybe even God is the source of it. Now, that's a whole other message and a whole other thing, but throughout the Old Testament, God says, I am the one that brings rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I bring good and I bring suffering. And so there's this, this idea, and so we ask that question of how can God be the source of that? Well, in James Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James kind of gives us a glimpse and says, listen, God is the source of those things because, one, he's a good father, and it sounds anti-good father, but he's in those things with us, and that the, the trials, the temptations, the suffering of life, he's there with us. So as the impurities of life, of our messiness is brought to the top, God cleans that out, and so he's using that stuff for a purpose and for a greater meaning. So that tomorrow we look a little bit more and we talk a little bit more, we think a little bit more, we act a little bit more like Jesus tomorrow than we did today. That, that actually throughout scripture there's a, a theology of suffering because we live life and that scripture is relevant to life and so it talks about that suffering will come, suffering is a part of life, what are we going to do with it when we're in the midst of it? So those other causes of suffering and depression in our life. But one of the things that I do want you to grasp is that God understands our suffering. Think about Jesus. The very first thing that Jesus did to begin his ministry was to go out into the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led out into the wilderness. And it wasn't even necessarily Jesus' idea, but he went out there because the Spirit, it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And when he was led into the Spirit by the wilderness, he was hungry and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And one of my favorite duh moments in Scripture, what does it say? He became very hungry. Well, duh. He didn't eat for 40 days. He drove by Waterburger and said, no. All right? He drove by places and he didn't do it. He didn't, but he was out in the wilderness and he didn't eat for 40 days and he became very hungry. I think it's interesting that the beginning of Jesus' ministry is very much like how the nation of Israel moved into the promised land. They were 40 years wandering in the desert and the wilderness and God consistently provided for them. And here Jesus, after 40 days of hungering and wanting, he's desperate Right? Forty days of not eating. He's desperate. And so Satan shows up and says, I can ease your suffering if you would just do this. And Jesus consistently goes back to the word and says, no, my father says, no, my father says, no, my father says. And so for us, understand that 
Jesus says temptation. He understands our suffering. He was desperate for the physical things. He understood what it meant to be in need. Then also his life and ministry, everywhere he went, he was attacked. He was mocked. The religious people of the day, their very pursuit was to say, you are not the king of kings. You don't match up with our description of what we think the king of kings is going to be. And so they were constantly pursuing him. And so his life and ministry is described as a man of sorrows and the suffering servant. So that his think, we think that he just went from place to place and it's like, oh, Jesus is coming. Yay. And everybody was around and they put up the stuff and so everybody. Now he was the suffering servant. So think of, that's his title. One of the titles of him is he suffered. He lived human life. Even in his death, he's on the cross and the crowds gather around and they mocked him. His disciples had left him. So he's alone, he's rejected, he's an outcast. and People are screaming at him, making fun of him, talking to him and, and, and all this. And so even in his very death, the where he drank the cup of wrath for us, he was suffering for us. So God in his humanity understands the depths of our suffering. If to under, to go through the depths of suffering that he went through, surely he can understand ours. He's not a, he's not a God that doesn't understand us. No other religious teaching, no other world religion has anything like this where that God stepped into our world and experienced life with us. 1 Kings chapter 19, we see another servant who would experience the great high of serving with Jesus. And this is one of the things that is studying depression and thinking through this idea is one of the things, especially for us as Christians, is we experience some high, we experience this thing, and so all of a sudden something happens. And so we're, we're kind of in this un penetrable, we're not vulnerable, we're Superman or whatever that is. And so we're kind of like, yay, God, look what I did when God's done it, right? And so here's Elijah. The story of Elijah is he was a prophet and he had done some miraculous things in a time. And, and so here he is at this one point and there were all these prophets of Baal and Elijah. And so Elijah and the prophets of Baal said, hey, let's go up to the top of this mountaintop and we're going to see whose God is the greatest God. It's kind of a fun thing. It'd be a great movie. And so Elijah and these prophets go to the top, and Elijah says, look, here's, here's the deal. You, you put up an altar like you do to, to your God, Baal, and to worship. And then after you're done and your God doesn't show up, I'll do mine. And so the prophets of Baal do that. They do their whole thing. They set up the wood, cut it, get all that stuff there, and they're, they're there. And so they begin to chant and do the different things that they do to call on their God. And after a few hours, the prophets of Baal aren't hearing from God. And so then Elijah, spiritual cynicism or sarcasm, begins to say, hey, where's your God at? What's your God? Is your God asleep? Maybe your God's on a bathroom break. Seriously, your God's up. So you just begin to do call out loud or do something so you can wake him up and get his attention. And so they do this. And so after a certain time, they're just kind of worn out. And Elijah's like, are you done yet? Like, yeah. So Elijah tells the people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to water, create a moat around it so just the water pours off and that there's no doubt that when my God does what he does here in a minute, that you're going to have no shadow of a doubt that my God is a true God. So they do that. And then Elijah says, God, 
Show them that you're God. That's my own translation. <sighs> Burns it all up. The rocks, the water, just literally it says it was like tongue reached out and just <sighs> burned it and it was gone. And immediately the prophets of Baal were scared because they were in the presence of the Holy God. Now, nothing had changed, right? But now they're, they're aware of the fact that they're in the presence of the Holy God. And so Elijah, like, begins cutting them down. And they begin to run, and he chases them. And so all this, he's excited, like, yeah, God, look what we did, look what we did. And then here comes this woman, who apparently is scary. I think of her, like, as Cruella DeVille. Came up to Elijah and said, Elijah, I'm going to get you. And so from this mountaintop high with God, all of a sudden someone speaks something to him and a lie somewhere in the depths of his heart takes root in that moment when she says, I'm going to get you. And so from being here and worshiping and excited, he runs away from her. So get your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 9. Or actually, let's do verse 8. <coughs> Excuse me. So he got up and he, he ate and he drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel for 40 days and 40 nights. That thing keeps showing up, doesn't it, that 40 thing? God likes 40 days and 40 nights. And so the mountain of God, and there he came to a cave where he spent the night. You see, that's, that's the struggle. It is the very moment that he should have pushed into community, that he should have pushed into the other worshipers. He ran because of the lie. He ran to a place, the cave, the darkest place he could possibly find, even the mountain of God where we receive the Ten Commandments, where God had shown his face. He runs to the cave and he hides. If you've been into a cave, the darkest caves, you can't even see your own hand in front of your face. So that's some of that is that that suffering, that depression is that we move and we run. When we run, should run to community, we run to the darkest place because we don't want to deal with those around us. We don't want to deal with God. We don't want to deal with, and so we run to the cave. But the Lord said to him, even in the suffering, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. That's that moment of isolation and I'm not worth in the sense of what he's feeling in that darkness and he's struggling with it. And then here's God talking to him in verse 11. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord said. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. And it was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And again, God is pursuing him, and he asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And here Elijah's cry again. He replied again, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you and torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The isolation, the darkness, 
There's no one else. I'm the only one. No one else has experienced this. No one else has these feelings. No one else is depressed as I'm depressed. No one else is suffering like I'm suffering. No one else has lost their job like I've lost their job. No one else's divorce is as messy as my divorce. No one else's kids are as messed up as my kids. No one. We run to the cave and we hide and we don't want to struggle with it. But the beauty is is that God sees us in the darkness of the cave and calls out to us and says, where are you? I want you to come. I am in relationship with you, and I want to experience this with you. I want you to know. I want you to hear. And even the things that that show up that we think are God, God whispers. Because for someone to whisper everything else, you have to stop and intently listen. And God speaks deep things in those quiet moments. You're worthy. I love you. You're called. Look, look what he says in verse 15. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way. The same way that you came and travel to the wilderness. It's not the place he wanted to go, but he sent him back the same way that he came. And when you arrive there, anoint Haziel, the king of Aram, and then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, the King of Israel. These are exciting names. I know you're excited. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel, Melaha, to replace you as my prophet. In other words, I'm not done with you yet. Go back from where you came from. I have stuff for you to do. You are chosen. You are called. And I know that it's tough right now. But I want to call you out of the cave with a gentle voice and I want to move you to the place that I want you to understand that I have something for you. You are my child and you are not junk. I don't make mistakes. Let's grind this out. You have a specific call that only you can do because the things that God asked Elijah to do, only Elijah could do. And there are things for us that in those moments where we want to pull back from community, the very thing that we need to be doing is pushing into community because people need you. They need your story. They need your experience. They need your gifts. They need your talents. They need you to speak into their life and say, this is where we're at together. We're going to go capture the world for Jesus Christ together. And it's not going to be easy. It's not an A plus B equals C, but we're going to grind it out because God is not done with us yet. Verse 17. Anyone who escapes from Haziel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Here's the victory for Elijah and Elijah. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. In other words, there's 7,000 other people just like you, Elijah. I know that you think that you're alone. I know that you think no one else is going through this. And I know that you've experienced something that no one else has experienced. But as worshipers, there are 7,000 other people that are crying out in the same way that you are. And I've heard your cries. Find that place of worship with them. Press in to community. Press in when you want to run and when you want to hide. Verse 19. So Elijah went and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field and There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. In other words, this dude was rich. So most people, if they had one, but he had a bunch, so just a big old train line 
of oxen before him. So he had a lot of money. So whenever he's getting a call from God, he's getting a call from Elijah, he has a lot to give up. And Elijah went over to him as he's plowing, and he threw his cloak over his shoulders and walked away. And Elisha left the oxen standing there and ran after Elijah and said to him, First let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. And Elijah replied, Go on back. But think about what I've done. So Elisha returned to the oxen and slaughtered them and used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast the flesh. And he passed them around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. That's a barbecue. I mean, that was like everybody's like, Woo, party. In the midst of that, what's it say? Then Elijah went with Elisha. Elijah went with Elijah as his assistant. The very place that he was running away from is the very place that he needed to be. That God provided for him a place to worship and it showed him that there are other people that are in the exact same place that you're in that need to be worshiping together and you need community. Listen. There's not an A plus B equals C that ends your suffering. Whatever your suffering is, whatever it has been, whatever it is, or whatever it's going to be, there's not an A plus B, but here's what I understand and here's what I know and here's what I've experienced. When I press in to community and those that I can trust in those deepest, darkest moments, when I run a run to the cave, I need to run to the home of those that are my 2 a.m. friends. And say, this is what I'm struggling with. This is where I'm at. This is what I'm suffering with. And that in those moments, that's when we're most in-depth worshiping because we're worshiping with one another. That's the moments that we're most like God with one another because we're in it together in the moments of the mess. And that we're vulnerable and that our joy is in Christ, but there's still that mess. So are you suffering or are you struggling? If so, the first thing to do is tell someone, tell someone, tell someone. Tell someone. Get out of the cave and tell someone. The other thing to do is if you don't have that type of friend and you can't do it, we have a counselor here that would love. Money doesn't keep you from doing counseling here, so if you need it, call us and we'll get you in. You need to talk to someone. You need to have community. You need to have someone walking with you in that. Maybe even more than that, you need to go see your doctor and talk to your doctor, and your doctor can work through some things with you, and you need to do that stuff. Let's not admit that there's chemical imbalances and different things. Again, this is not an easy solution, but there are solutions. There is hope. There is victory. There are others that we can fight and grind together. The other part is, as a follower of Jesus, keep pursuing God. Don't give up on worship. Don't just say, why God? Why would you allow this to say, what God? What, where are you? What do I need to be? Where do I need to be? Who, where? And begin to worship. And there's something that happens in worship when we begin to see, I'm not the Savior. I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers. I can't do it all. And the mirror begins to attain from here to up there. And we realize that he is worthy. And so our perspective changes. And also I think the most difficult thing maybe to do of all of this is to do community. Is to truly do community 
with someone, and it doesn't have to be 5,000 people or 7,000 people, if it's two or three, that you say, this is who I am, and let's journey together. Because life is going to happen. Life is messy. You are going to struggle. Your relationships are not going to be perfect. Someone in your life is going to die. Your body will begin to fail you. Others will disappoint you. You will fail yourself. Your addictions, your mess will come up at the most least likely time that you think. All of these things, and our natural tendency is to run to the cave, and God says, run to me and run to community. I love you. And I still don't sleep at nights. Because I love you. And I don't want you to struggle. I don't want you to suffer without knowing that there is greater hope in Jesus Christ. But I do not want you to think that because you come here and we smile and we check off boxes that we've done our God thing, that he's going to ching oh, Chris, you've done it, so I'm going to bless you. And you're not going to have struggles. That's not how God works. God says, I will join you in this mess. He was God incarnate, and he joined, and he did life with us, and he experienced it so he could say to us, I understand that our great high priest, when we bow and we worship, he can say, I understand your mess. I've seen it. I've experienced it. Your temptations, I've experienced it. And I know, and I want you to know that I'm going to walk with you in it. That's what separates our God from all the other gods, is that he drank the cup of wrath and he suffered for us. That's our king. That's our priest. That's our God. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you for who you are. And I thank you that you love this mess. This imperfect church family, this imperfect pastor, this imperfect group of people that are in pursuit of you. That are in pursuit of sharing the love of Jesus Christ with our neighbors that are in the midst of struggling and suffering and do not have the hope and the joy of Jesus Christ. But that's a whole nother level of darkness in the cave. To not know that God is in the cave with us and will lead us out if we just listen to his voice. That our neighbors, so many of our neighbors, don't know that God wants them to walk out of the cave even know that he's in the cave with them. Father, this week, may we just be praying for our neighbors. Father, this week, if we're suffering, may we tell someone. May we find a counselor. May we find a group. May we find a doctor. May we just worship. Maybe this week, for the first time in a long time, we start our day on our knees saying, God, I need you. Change our perspective. Pray as is everything depends upon you.
because it does. May you be honored in the midst of our suffering this week. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.